Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the You Can Do It Too podcast by Mamba Inspire. I am Mamadou Balde, I'm your host. The purpose of this podcast is to both showcase black excellence and increase awareness of the multitude of career possibilities out there for up-and-coming black professionals. This podcast will assist in breaking stigmas, barriers, and helping black students believe that they are smart enough to be future doctors, engineers, educators, and entrepreneurs. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an honor to welcome Dr. Brian Reed on our podcast. Dr. Brian Reed grew up in Sugarland, Texas, and did both his undergraduate and medical degree at the University of Michigan. He's a practicing family physician for nearly two decades now, and is also one of the first hired at the new University Houston Medical School. He also served as one of the lead physicians during Hurricane Harvey at the NRG Stadium Shelter. First of all, how everything going over there? It's going well. Um, so we're ready to take our first class of medical students um, in about two weeks. Orientation begins July 20th for our first class of 30 students. Wow. Classes start on uh, the 27th. So we're very excited. Wow. We're a brand new med school. So this is our very first class. Um, okay. The normal time that we start. A lot of medical schools start in August and just kind of go continuously. But this is the first group of students that we'll have at the University of Houston College of Medicine. That's amazing. That's amazing. How, how's your practice? Are you still seeing patients right now? With everything Absolutely. Going? Yeah, yeah. So a uh, couple of places. We have a federally qualified health center on campus. It's a Lone Star Circle of Care, U of H location. So I see patients there uh, right now three half days a week. And then we also have a practice with the uh, Harris Center for Mental Health and IDD. It's a location, it's part of the safety net in the Houston area that primarily focuses on patients with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, severe depression, and we're doing the primary care for them. So I'm there two days a week. So about half the time I'm in the clinic. Definitely. And your day-to-day have not changed because of the COVID-19. Well, it's, you know, it's, so we're doing a lot. When I'm not in clinic, we're working remotely. Uh, and, of course, clinic has changed a bit. We're doing some of our visits virtually. So, um, you know, I talk to people on cameras instead of in person in, in some of the situations. So that's, that's been a pretty dramatic change. Um, wow. More protection. You know, we, we, even without the mask orders, we've been wearing masks in clinics all day uh, since March. And then, of course, when we have somebody that's suspected of having uh, COVID-19 or any sort of fever or any symptoms, we're in what we call full protective, personal protective equipment. So then we have mask, face, gown, gloves. So. Wow. So I know, I know you were born in Michigan, right? Right. Right. And then you moved to, to Sugarland, Texas in the 1980s. Yeah. Definitely. Do you, do you remember Michigan at all? Or did you live at a younger age, at a young age? Yeah, I left pretty much at a young age. I mean, I, I only thing I really remember about Michigan was sort of snow and cold. And I did uh, like kindergarten and Started first grade there, but most of my memories of childhood are from Sugarland, growing up there. Wow, do you remember why it was the move? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so it was during one of the economic downturns uh, that plagued the auto industry. Uh, my father worked for Ford uh, Motor Company. Uh, he worked at the Deer in the Dearborn location, and uh, like the oil industry in Texas, the car industry up in Michigan and the Midwest would kind of go up and down at times. And it was one of the bad downturns uh, in the late uh, '70s, early '80s, and. Uh, my dad, who's an engineer, basically left the automotive industry to come to Houston and work in the oil industry. Wow, I heard about that story. It's kind of crazy how Michigan was that amazing uh, economic city and it just went down yeah. with that. Wow, yeah. so from, from, uh, from Michigan to Houston, to, to Sugarland, yeah. right? how, how was growing up at that moment during that time uh, as a young black man in the United States? So it's really sort of funny in the sense that, um, you know, a lot of things that I think would be considered offensive today was absolutely tolerated back then. And it wow. didn't, didn't really bother us because it was just sort of like, that's just the way it is. Um, we had at that point progressed from uh, segregation. Um, some places had been integrated at that time for, you know, 10 to 15 years. So, I mean, it hadn't been that long. Um, but, uh, you know, I didn't see like any sort of colored only, you know, water fountains and things like that. Um, there were some parts of town that, you know, you were not welcome in and you just kind of knew not to go there at the time um, and you tried to stay away from those areas. Uh, Sugarland was a pretty new um, development at the time. A lot of transplants, so people that were moving from other parts of the country were going into Sugarland. Um, it was relatively diverse at that time. Um, uh, you know, there weren't that many um, blacks or African Americans, but we did have uh, you know several Mexican Americans uh, that grew up that I grew up with, and Indian uh, East Indian Americans uh, that uh, I grew up with. So. Um, and, and Chinese Americans I grew up with. So, uh, you know, I felt there that I had, um, you, know, you know, quite a bit of diversity in, in the community. And, and I think Sugarland has remained that way. Uh, it's a little bit of a unique area. Wow. Uh, you mentioned the fact that during that time, uh, these issues weren't very, it's something that you see everywhere, right? Do you feel like it's because uh, today, uh, the fact that it's all out there is because of social media or it's just because uh, during that time, uh, the people that live had a tougher skin? Um, you know, I think social media has something to do with it. Also, I think um, we've made progress uh, in terms of um, pursuing equity and pursuing uh, racial uh, uh, justice. We, I mean, I mean there, were, there were incidents of, of of uh, violence against uh, African-Americans back then, but we didn't have like the cameras to capture, you know, stuff happened. And, um, you know, what would, what, would ha what would transpire would just be sort of word of mouth that, you know, such as such happened, there was no necessarily proof, there would be no, no justice. And then accordingly, there wouldn't be that sort of collective outrage because not everyone could see what transpired or people didn't always believe you know, that this happened to you or this happened to so-and-so because there was no, you know, photographic proof. So I think that, you know, 
in our own community, uh, sort of African-American community or the Mexican-American, we knew of incidents. And, um, you know, you had a couple people that would stand up and protest and argue about things and uh, try to bring light to these bad situations, but you just did not have as many people backing them because there just wasn't as much visibility and wasn't as much um, collective uh, calls for action. I mean, there were, there were calls for action, but it just did not have thousands of people turning out or, or you know, mass gatherings. So oftentimes the strategy was more defensive. Uh, you know, you might discuss things at the dinner table and you say, well, you just don't do that. You stay away from there. You know, don't confront it. That's asking for trouble. You know, or if you know, you know, you have issues with, like with uh, you know law enforcement. Uh, you know, you, you didn't go protest at city hall. It was just you just avoided it as much as possible and tried to keep yourself out of these situations. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That makes sense. That makes sense. You mentioned your your father was an engineer, right? Yes. And, uh, could you describe a little bit uh, the kind of family you grew grew up in and? Uh, what were some systems that were set up in place to keep you out of trouble and just protect you to have that uh, amazing childhood? So again, I think the, you know, the neighborhood that we grew up in was pretty safe. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, criminal activity. I mean, there were you know, a couple of break-ins here and there. And, you know, some children that would get into mischievous things, but for the most part, um, uh, it was pretty safe. Uh, was, my household was a two-parent household. Uh, both of uh, my parents had uh, college degrees and, and some of them had actually, you know, as I was growing up, they actually pursued advanced degrees. So education was um, a view. An expectation. Ex exactly, an expectation. So my father was an engineer and he ultimately got an MBA uh, and did a lot of work within um, Amoco followed by uh, British Petroleum. And then my mother was um, an elementary school teacher who pursued various degrees um, while I was in school um, throughout junior high and high school so that she could move up uh, from just being a teacher to an assistant principal to principal. And ultimately, she was um, a director of education over an entire um, school district. So all the principals for of the elementary schools reported to her at one point, but at that, that point I was in college, but uh, education and, you know, achievement in school was, you know, always sort of stressed and always something that um, I, I, I wanted to um, pursue because that's what I saw in my parents. And in terms of sort of staying out of trouble, I, get, I think it, it, it's, you know, who you surround yourself with. We, you know, there's plenty of opportunities to get in trouble. I was what you call a latchkey kid. So, um, what does I, that mean? So, what does that mean? So, you know, this is something that is almost unthinkable nowadays, but, you know, I would walk home from school and nobody would be home. I would basically have my key. I see. Home. And when I get home, you lock the door. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so these are, we, we call it latchkey kids. So, um, you know, that was as early as five, five years old, you know, I'd be home alone. This podcast is about showcasing black professionals who are doing excellent things. But what is the definition of black excellence? Taking what you have and making the best of it. 
can achieve things when literally like the whole entire system is designed like in ways that are like is designed to exclude us. It doesn't matter what you start out with, it matters where you go. And then when you go, you're not going just for you. You're going to lead the way for someone else. It means excelling at a high level while staying true to yourself and true to yourself in your black. We still are able to, you know, just like go the extra mile or, you know, carry the extra weight that we need to carry just because of society and still achieve the things that we're able to achieve. And pay it for. That's my definition of that When did you realize you could, you could be a doctor? When did you realize that a black man can be a doctor? Or was it something that was always ingrained in you? No, it wasn't. I mean, I'm the first uh, medical doctor in the family. Um, we did know a few uh, black medical doctors at the time. I, I knew of a psychiatrist and then there was an OB-GYN that we knew of, but for the, it's pretty rare. And, and um, you know, f for me, the inspiration as, as again, how it's funny how things change over time. The inspiration for me was actually Bill Cosby and his role with Dr. Huxtable on TV. Wow. I mean, I, I, I didn't have any doctors in the family and no one really to see, but I said, you know, I saw this man on TV playing an obstetrician gynecologist and that, that's what I wanted to do. Even though it was a situation comedy, it was like, okay, that's, that, that's something tangible there. You know, he's married to a lawyer and I said, well, this, this is great. And, and, and my story is not too different from others. I mean, when I actually got into med school, the discipline of emergency medicine was just emerging. And at that time, ER was on TV. So a lot of my classmates were like, I want to be ER, and I'm watching ER every day. I mean, that's, that's you know, kind of funny how, uh, you know, we, we see these images and, and, and that's, you know, even though they're fictional, it, it's, it, it can actually shape some of our uh, realities. Wow, that's, that's an amazing point of view. That that's just shows how important TV is, how amazing it's a tool for socialization for so many kids, right? It's so important right. nowadays to bring that positive uh, picture out there for young kids to, to see uh, and be inspired by. That, that's definitely right. a great point of view. And uh, so, you, you were born in Michigan, and uh, you guys moved to Houston, to Sugarland, right? Yes. And you decided to go back to Michigan for college. How did that come about? I feel like Michigan just were in your blood from the beginning. <laughs> so there, there was always, I guess, a little bit of indoctrination. I mean, at the time, you could still catch Michigan football games on Saturdays every week. Um, we would go back every now and then um, to meet with really close family friends that we considered to be family. So um, when the time came for me to consider um, colleges, I did do a college visit or college tour at Michigan. And they had a unique program at the time. It was one that um, accepted students from high school directly into the undergrad as well as medical school at the same time. Wow. So I uh, got accepted straight out of high school into medical school. And that was really sort of the deciding factor for me to go to med school there. 
um, and leave the state. I mean, I, I did get accepted into UT Austin. I got accepted into Texas A&M. Uh, I got accepted into Northwestern Washington University at the time. Um, the um, just the really sort of just was that combined program that was so appealing. Wow. Did you have any family there or it was just you going back? I had really sort of close family friends. They weren't sort of, um, you know, connected to me via blood. But um, interestingly enough, um, my father had uh, two fraternity brothers that were there. And they were essentially the same as family. Uh, one was my godfather and the other, I called him my uncle, even though he was not uh, related to my dad, um, you know, through any sort of genealogy. Definitely. So, you know, they were, they were my sort of family away from home. I, I could get a meal, you know, with them. My godfather had a son that was a year younger than me and he had ultimately enrolled in Michigan. So we were there, um, you know, you know, we were very tight, the, the two of us. Um, and, uh, you know, I just made new friends while I was there, but those, those were the sort of familial connections that I had. Definitely, definitely. So once you arrived uh, at the University of Michigan, like how hard was it to adapt? Because you, you may have been in a, in a school that is majority white in Sugarland, but Michigan yeah. was a PWI that is gigantic, so many, so many students. And how hard was it to adapt? Did you, did you experience any uh, imposter syndrome and anything like that? Not so much imposter syndrome, because um, I, I did really well in undergrad there. Um, the thing that um, would come up from time to time was, um, and, I, and I think you might face this at a lot of big institutions, um, was uh, some assumption that I was there on campus because of affirmative action, that they were some sort of bending of the rules to let me in the door. Still going on. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I knew better than that. I mean, I went to a pretty much all white high school for the most part and finished like seventh in my class out of like 400 something. And my SAT schools were solid. And I got into this, you know, uh, you know highly competitive program that accepted only so many students uh, straight into med school. So, I mean, I knew better. But so I, I didn't let that bother me, but I knew that there was that perception on campus. I mean, we had even at orientation, I went up there for orientation and they had, you know, some dialogues or discussions, facilitated discussions. And I mean, it came out. I mean, some of the people that I was friendly with were like, hey man, my friend isn't here because there's black people. And I was like, that's a crazy assumption. But that was, you know, in his mind. Wow. Um, so, I mean, that was one thing to deal with. And then it was a much different community of individuals. I mean, there were a lot more black people on campus than what I would see at high school, just because of the sheer numbers. But a lot of them were a little different than their, their perspective on race uh, was a lot different than mine. Um, you know, in all honesty, I, I felt like uh, <laughs> the slow southerner um, up there because there was, um, so much willingness to confront racial injustice, so much um, uh, demanding of change when I was on campus, in part because two years before I came to campus, um, they closed the campus. Uh, the Black Student Union 
had what they call a Black Action Movement. And on day, they changed, chained the doors of the classes saying, we're not having class today. We're going to recognize MLK Day as a holiday. And um, until you make some changes, we're not opening. Wow. Take these, and they had to sit in in the president's office and everything. So by the time I got to campus, MLK Day was a holiday. And it was the most fantastic symposium of events I, you know, I'd ever seen. I mean, still to this day, I, I've yet to see a menu of things to do in celebration of MLK that rivals what they do at the University of Michigan. Um, but it was because the students demanded that and, you know, they, they fought for it. So some of those fighters were now juniors and seniors on campus. And those folks were angry. I mean, they were a lot angrier than me. I just didn't, I didn't get their mindset. I didn't understand, you know, what, you know, all the, you know, the fighting, um, you know, would do and why we had to keep fighting. I just, I just could not quite get that because, you know, where I came from and we just sort of tolerated so much stuff here where, you know, they weren't having it. And, yeah. and, they, and they proved, um, you know, through action, they could get change and they were steady pushing for change. Um, and, and some of the promises that were made to them two years early, earlier had not been kept to their satisfaction. So, you know, they were basically telling us, you know, us younger folks not to be satisfied. You need to keep this going. You need to keep, keep it going. going. Keep it going. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So I know you started at Michigan knowing that you were going to go to medical school. You, you already had decided that. But the journey to medical school is a hard one. The classes yes. are, are very rigorous. And did you, what were some challenges you faced? And did you ever came to a point where you second guessed yourself and really uh, was wondering if this is something you wanted to keep doing and what kept you going? So it really wasn't until medical school where I sort of second guessed myself. I mean, undergrad was tough. It, it was a condensed um, curriculum. So we would get through our undergrad program in three years and the fourth year would be our first year of medical school. Um, I've never really been afraid of the work. I spent a lot of time in the library. Um, I was usually carrying about 16 hours each, each semester. And I did do some work too. I um, kind of always held down some sort of job for the most part, whether it be working in the cafeteria a couple hours a week or uh, serving as an RA, um, you know, but you know, I spent a lot of time studying and a lot of time um, uh, reading ahead to do well in those sort of basic sciences in preparation for medical school. But in medical school, um, there was just a whole nother level of intelligence and smartness <laughs> in those rooms. And, uh, you know, I'd you'd grown accustomed to being the top dog and it was not the case when I got to med school. I mean, uh, you know, people say, well, what do they call the last person or in terms of academic rank that graduates from med school? They call them a doctor, you know, they call them, you know, but, um, it was it was a blow to the ego. It was a, you know, quite an adjustment to be scoring on some tests below the mean. Now, mind you, the mean was like ninety and ninety two percent, but on most of the tests. But uh, you know, so I did well, but it was not usually as well as my peers, at least during the uh, first uh, two years. So that that you know was it was it was hard and. 
the amount of work, the volume of work in medical school was something like I had never seen. And, um, you know, I'd been at Michigan, so a pretty rigorous uh, undergrad, carried a lot of hours, but this was just on a whole nother level in terms of um, demand. And, um, you know, it was just like, really, as we were getting into it, it was like, you know, this is, where's the connection to the patients? I didn't see that. I think sort of that sort of imposter syndrome started to creep in because um, here in medical school, now there's fewer minorities than the larger campus of Michigan. Um, you're interacting with a smaller group of individuals, um, whereas in a university campus, you know, you've got multiple classes, maybe 400, 500 people in some of these classes. Here in a med school class, it's the same people it's the same, you know, 150, 180. Um, and, uh, you know, if they're all doing better than you or it feels like they're all doing better than you, then you're just like, okay, um, <laughs> you know, am I going to make it? This is really hard. And, you know, do I really belong? Because everyone else seems to be excelling here and um, seems to be quite easy for them. Whereas, you know, this is a struggle and it's only going to get harder as you go along. I want to say close to 180 uh, total, and we oh, had a, a big class. Yeah, it's a big class, um, somewhere around 180, and I think we had about 13 uh, African Americans um, in that class, and then and unfortunately, not all of us finished. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. What? What? I, I always wonder what's that process like. Is it? Is it like uh, you just decide that you tire? Do Do you drop out of it because of the grades? I mean. Do they force you to drop out of it, or do you decide that it's something that you don't want to do anymore, or it's both? I've seen both. Wow. I've seen both. I've seen people quit early. Uh, they'll get about six six months in and be like, "I can't do this," and um, they're not happy, um, and they they leave. Um, others, I mean, they try to keep you in school. They they really do because we know that we're highly selective and. Um, you know, we want everybody to finish, get to that finish line and become a practicing physician. And what we know we don't want to lose any spots because, you know, that's one less uh, clinician or one less doctor in the world. So they give people multiple chances. Um, unfortunately, it's expensive. So usually they offer whatever course they have once a year. So if you fail too, too many classes, you basically got to start over the following year, you know, maybe you can get a job in a lab or something to, to, to buy the time while your, the rest of your classmates move forward. But if you fail so many times, then you're dismissed. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what you do um, in that situation because um, you're not going to get back into a med school. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I don't think anybody else is going to accept you if you failed out of one. Uh, you probably have to pursue some other uh, health professional career or, or you know, some other uh, avenue. Um, but yeah, I, I've seen both situations where uh, people, um, you know, drop out early. Uh, they recognize early this is uh, not what they want or they think the lifestyle is too challenging and others that are uh, dismissed. And even sometimes in residency, so sometimes people go through all of it and like, yeah, this is too much, so uh, I'll do something else. This podcast is about showcasing black professionals who are doing excellent things. But what is the definition of black excellence? 
taking what you have and making the best of it. Can achieve things when literally like the whole entire system is designed like in ways that are like is designed to exclude us. It doesn't matter what you start out with. It matters where you go. And then when you go, you're not going just for you. You're going to lead the way for someone else. It means excelling at a high level while staying true to yourself and true to yourself in your black. We still are able to, you know, just like go the extra mile or, you know, carry the extra weight that we need to carry just because of society and still achieve the things that we're able to achieve. And pay it for. That's my definition of that. Where did you go for your residency? Was it in Michigan too, or? Yes, I was at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, and I had a great experience there. Yeah. yeah. What was that like? What What were some of the biggest challenges or uh, craziest stories that you experienced working there? So um, Henry Ford is interesting in the sense that it's right there in the middle of the city. It's one of the premier hospitals in the Detroit area. So we had uh, a mix of patients from different socioeconomic backgrounds. So we would have, you know, the CEOs of some local companies and hospitalized right alongside a homeless individual. You know? So that, that was always fascinating to me. It was never a dull moment. Um, some of our VIPs, like some of the Detroit Lions, Red Wings, and Detroit Tigers, if they had, you know, an illness that was pretty critical, they would be hospitalized on a special suite. Um, up on our sixth floor. And if we didn't have any special VIPs, I mean, you know, somebody that's homeless would go into this nice suite and needed a bed, you know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, so we, we uh, that, that was what was inter interesting to me, fascinating to me. Definitely. I, I know, I know uh, burnout is one of, uh, one big issue today, and it's something that many, uh, many schools try to address and try to eliminate. But during your time, uh, medical school and residency, uh, what was that like? Did you, have you seen anyone going through that? And you have some advice for people like, oh, what is it like? What, what was your experience concerning that? So, yeah, medical training is difficult because of the hours um, that are required. And at the time, um, when I was going through residency, they were just implementing some duty hour restrictions. So for us, um, the maximum number of hours we could work in a week was 80 wow. in one week. I mean, that was a reduction from what it had been. Before, with that, people were bending the rules. I mean, I know some of my rotations, I had like 84 hours of scheduled time, and you would routinely kind of go over it. Um, you know, so that's, that's part of the reason why we tell people, you know, if you're in it for the money, you got to find something else to do because there's an easier way to make a buck. And, uh, you know, during residency, at the time I was going through it, I mean, we had we would add it up. We were like, you know, if I work this many hours, I, I I'd be better off at McDonald's, you know, in terms of yeah. <laughs> the amount of money that I'm making. So it has to be a passion. It has to be a calling. And um, you know, for some, it was too much. I, I've saw saw people switch from surgery to uh, maybe radiology or different discipline that allowed better work-life balance 
because it could be overwhelming. Um, it's different now because of uh, you know duty hour restrictions. Uh, we've had to increase the amount of physician staffing in giving residents some more break. I think some keys to success are, um, you know, again, really loving what you do and surrounding yourself with good people, whether it be family or friends, and not losing contact with them. I know that your uh, work requirements, you know, do you know require calls and being away from home, but um, you know, staying connected with that support, I think that helps people get through and helps keep them grounded in terms of what they're doing. Definitely, definitely. So after you became a physician and uh, you started working as a, you started working as a physician after residency, how hard was it to, do you think you had to work hard, harder because of your, because of the color of your skin uh, to be accepted by your colleagues? Um, honestly, yeah, I would say so. Um, I've always sort of felt that way. I mean, you know, I'd be lying if I say it's changed today. Um, I'm now in a position of authority within a pretty new med school, but I still feel like I, I can't, I can't relax. I can't, you know, do something that I can't cut corners. Yes, where, you know, I may observe someone else and I think you know, they're cutting corners or not putting in maximum effort. I, I just don't ever feel like I would get the same sort of allowances or same sort of breaks. Um, within either administration or even my patients. I mean, I think their expectations of me are maybe higher than others because I don't necessarily fit the stereotype. Um, I, I'm a little bit older now, so I don't, I don't feel as if I have to do as hard a job as sort of selling myself, but definitely when I started out out of residency, I mean, I, people were looking at, who's this young guy? Yes, you know, sir. Sort of put, put my, my faith or my trust in him. So, you know, nowadays, I, I have a lot more confidence, but I still feel like um, at, times, at times I have to be on my game and always up to date. And I still feel like I'll get questioned. You know, I'm not sure if I'm getting questioned more so than anyone else uh, because of the color of my skin. But I, I, I you know, I, I still feel as if that, that you know, could happen and, and probably does happen. And I, I just feel like with my knowledge, as well as bedside matter, I can you know, win over most. I mean, some may still just be like, whatever. I'm at. <laughs> I'll go get someone else. <laughs> you know, I'll get somebody else. But I, I haven't, you know, had anybody directly say, hey, you know, nurse, I got to see somebody else or, you know, was in the hospital. I've never had that happen to me. But it does happen. I mean, I know. One of the biggest question people ask in medical interviews is, why do you want to be a doctor? I, want, I wanted to ask you, like, what inspired you to wake up every day and answer your call? That's a great question. I mean, for me, it's the opportunity to help people. Um, and I think when I was in Michigan and in Detroit, I developed a care for medically underserved communities and communities of color. So, you know, I feel like I'm needed. I feel like um, I can't take days off um, because people are in such a need of help, uh, particularly in some of these uh, medically underserved communities where there are no other doctors or fewer resources. So that's, that's sort of my motivation. And, and then they, they give me a lot of love and a lot of energy. Uh, the patients that I see, they're so appreciative of uh, me being there for them. Yes. So that's, that's what motivates me. Wow. 
That's amazing. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Reed. Uh, this was an amazing opportunity to learn about you, to talk to you. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Absolutely. I made the black queen's grace continually mesmerize the millions who couldn't see it when looking into her eyes. And the black man's plight no longer be the disguise. Oppression, emasculation, they want to castracize it. I just want to be me. I just want to be free. I just want liberty, equity, and democracy. I just want to believe in the good of society. I just want to believe that they ain't been lying to me. I want equality. Want no more poverty. I want people to tell you it's more black people in jail for committing crimes. The blacks and whites are committing equally. I want the corporate interest to crumble before my feet I want them to stop selling your rights to powers that be I want a third term for Obama we'll never see No Democrat, no Republican, me, I want unity I want the righteous voice speaking to my community Don't listen to what they say and look at what they say to see I want you to know the truth, but for that you will have to see All people are beautiful, but you best know my